With a known existence of about 3,500 years, China is one of the oldest nations in the world. With a historic tapestry woven with turmoil, peace, mystery, and beauty, it is now all but demonized in the U.S., primarily on the political stage. But is China truly a dark giant that we need to fear? On this episode of Voluntary Input, I speak with author Jason Sheftel, who hosts the China Unraveled podcast. Jason has a background in law and development and is a China specialist with a deep understanding of China and the Chinese economy. Jason speaks about what life is like in China, the Communist Party's role there, as well as China's relationship with Hong Kong and Taiwan. Finally, Jason offers a future view of China that may surprise you. Never forced, never coerced. Open discussions about things in life that matter to you most. From tech to TV, movies, and gaming, and everything in between. Visit voluntaryinput.com to subscribe, contact us, and find out how you can support the show. Catch new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. And be sure to join us every Friday night at 11 p.m. Eastern and Saturday night at 11 p.m. GMT for Weekend Chill, exclusively on Mixcloud. All right, I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight, Jason. Um, before we dive in, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure, yes. My name's Jason Cheftel, and I've been really in and around China for a long time. My interest goes back like 20 years. I was first in China about 10 years ago now. I got a scholarship to study there. I learned Chinese there, lived there. I was in Beijing. And yeah, then I've been developing sort of other models. I was in law, I was in development, uh, and I've been trying to figure out sort of what pieces come together to like create, make countries the way they are. And, you know, it's all come together in the sort of the podcast and the book and the other things I do on China. And I just kind of come on podcasts and to try and share some of what I know and have a conversation about China and what's going on, how to think about it. Are you in China now? I'm not, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So you, you stayed there, you, you said you went 20 years ago. How long so were you there? I was in there between uh, 2011 and on and off between 2011 and 2014. And I could have gone back in 2017, but around, well, 2014 is when things got a bit dicey and sort of the way I talk about China and the things I talk about, sort of the, and even the people I know, it didn't make sense to go back. So you can even read, there's things called exit bans. You can't exactly leave China if they don't like, you know, sometimes they say, hey, welcome, but you can't leave. So wow. yeah, there's some, I mean, there's dark stuff going on there in a lot of ways. And just based on the things I say and even the people I met and the things I was doing, it didn't uh, make a lot of sense to go back. So I had to dive into the history. I had to dive in you know, more in the language and different people and that. And that's where it taught, brought me. I don't think I've ever heard of an exit ban before. I've heard of countries saying, well, you got to get out and you're not allowed back. But no, it's often wow. lev it's often leverage uh, if you're let's say you're trying to. So a common actually something that happened recently, relatively recently, last two, three years was a couple of Canadian journalists were basically, you know, held in China due to, you know, conflicts the Canadian, you know, the U.S., Canadian and Chinese governments had. And yeah, I mean, it's becoming, especially since COVID, it's become really hard for journalists in general. The level of access to the Chinese government, Chinese facilities, Chinese everything is just massively declining. And they're really sort of, you know, tightening the, you know, clenching down on, on the population and on information flows. So Something like this, like we couldn't even do this podcast in China. Like it would just be a second, three seconds in, it would be like, hi, Jason, Pfft, shut. <laughs> and if you type my name in the internet, you wouldn't be able to find anything. So Right. Yeah, I've heard of that stuff happening. But uh, but I, I think um, a lot of that, that sounds like what's kind of typical of governments. It's more of a fear thing, would you think? You know, because technology does move pretty quickly and it expands faster and faster. So in a way they fear you know, real information getting out. So they just basically clamp down and say, well, you're just not allowed to, to even use this stuff anymore. Yeah, that's what happened. I mean, that's why Facebook was never really let in China. Google, not really. Uh, they, you know, they want tight control of everything. They want tight control of all the data that their population develops. So if you're a Tesla car and you're trying to make your autopilot system work, you can't actually use any data from China. The data is like Chinese land. It's seen to be as a, a, pro a national asset of the Chinese government and you know the Chinese people, but really the Chinese government. 
So yeah, it's kind of everything. And they're scared of, you know, they, they shut down Bitcoin and crypto technologies for the same reason. And they're, they're right on some things. Like a lot of these technologies are super destabilizing and the Chinese yeah. system is, is vulnerable in a lot of ways. So they're not wrong. They're just often pretty brutal and rough the way they go about things. Heavy handed. <laughs> yeah, heavy handed. Exactly. So I think it would be a good starting point is to maybe let's back up a little bit. Let's back up and talk about maybe the history of why would you think, you know, well, let's start about talk about the development of, you know, the, the Chinese economic system maybe and how technology slowly started propelling them forward to the point where, especially here in the States, the way we view them, you know, how they're viewed now. Sure. So we'll skip ancient Chinese history, but modern stuff, you know, 1949, the Communist Party came into power and people always forget this in 1949, this country was uh, undeveloped is, is an understatement. Women still had bound feet. Uh, there was very little education anywhere. There was a very little industrialized systems outside of sort of Taiwan, which wasn't a part of it, and Northeast. And a lot of things were destroyed. It had been basically colonized by Japan for decades. And the Japanese basically conquered every part of China that they wanted, except for one region in the interior. And the land had been going through pretty much decades of, of warlord rule. It's actually called like the warlord era in part. And it was it was in a bad place, right? And so when Mao came in, in particular, and took it over, you know, they tried to do certain things and they basically tried to copy the Soviet Union. So they wanted to industrialize in the Soviet style, which is a very brutal thing to do. But the difference is that China is, you know, multiple times larger than the Soviet Union. It didn't have the connections to, to Europe, and it was also just way, way, way less developed. And the, the cultural things are, are so deep. I mean, even the Chinese language, they had to recreate the Chinese language. People don't really you know, realize mm. this, but the Chinese language you see now, it's called simplified Chinese. Well, when did it right. simplify? They simplified yeah, it. I, in, I've heard that, and I didn't know. You know I thought yeah. maybe they just did it for us dummies. <laughs> no, no, they did it because it's so complex. I mean, the Ancient Chinese will be like, you know, be a little, you know, they have the little characters, right? It looks kind of like a, mm -hmm. a square box with some symbol stuff in it. The ancient Chinese, I mean, the traditional Chinese will have like dozens of lines. You know, it's super nested and it's in, in part an image composed of other images. And you know, this is where the sort of beauty, beauty of calligraphy and stuff came in. But if you're trying to teach people just mass education, if you're trying to have symbols and like words and, you know, the government authority even, it's just too much. Even trying to right. type it on a, a, a cell phone now would be impossible, like if you had to do it. So... <laughs> They did that. And so it was a very different place. And basically what happened in the 50s and 60s made some big changes. I mean, they had marriage laws. They had the new, you know, just basic agriculture, basic stuff came in. But they basically face planted when they tried to industrialize is what happened. The Chinese system, it face planted. And the basically it's a revolutionary Marxism at the time. So Mao was trying to maintain power while maintaining the revolution, while trying to get to the communist utopia. It was a very complex thing. And it just led to, you know, a whole, I mean, it's often cultural revolution is what people, the term people will hear was basically this time where Mao in particular got China to fight against itself and to fight its demons and to fight its history and to get rid of the old and do all this stuff. But it just led to such chaos that China by the late 1970s was looking, um, I mean, it was facing mass famine. You know, actually the worst mm -hmm. famine in human history occurred in China during this period. And if things hadn't gotten better, you would have seen like a rolling series of the worst famines ever. I mean, it's just... It was a bad place. It snowballed, um, yeah. Yeah, snowballed. So then late 1970s, they kind of get get together with the United States. You know, they had both had problems with the Soviet Union. And basically, they started to relax the total state control of everything. They allowed foreign capital, foreign ideas, foreign companies to enter the country. And they started to basically industrialize and to become a node in the global uh, system that's kind of held helmed by the United States, which basically with the global system of consumption and production we have in the current sort of form of industrial capitalism if that wasn't too many words for people um but th that's <laughs> that's like that's kind of what happened and they kind of plugged in and what's really interesting right. people, people won't tell you this but china and uh, mainland china the communist, you know, communist china and hong kong and taiwan since the late 70s have all been part of one system whether even right. though they're not one political system they've been one economic and social system the, they've brought a lot of uh, you know, financial, you know, a lot of finance and money moved through Hong Kong. A lot of technologies moved west through Taiwan. Taiwan, and, yeah. And those are the main export hubs are actually right across from these places. So this is, this is a big part of what happened. And so what happened, 80s and 90s, it starts ramping up. They start getting massive scale stuff. So when I was saying that China was undeveloped, China is like the size of the U.S. physically. And 
it's got like four and a half times as many people, or four, four to five times as many people. And right, yeah. they had no infrastructure. They had to build everything. And China is a, is a difficult place. Like it's really mountainous. It's a hard place to actually develop infrastructure. So when you see Chinese infrastructure, it's super impressive always because it has to be. If it's not impressive, it's not enough. And you can't, can't cross, <laughs> you can't, can't make it across the ravine. You can't get across there and stuff like that. So China was just, they realized the scale of what they had to do. And the Communist Party top down just started marching orders, like just sent it out and started getting everyone to develop the electrical lines, the power, the ports, the sewage systems, the highways, the roads, it's everything. They had to build everything. So yeah, that's what they did. And then, you know, starting around 2008, this is when this um, period, basically a 30 year period, 1979 to like 1978 to roughly 2008, this was the golden age of, of, you know, modern Chinese capitalism and development. They kind of built a lot of their systems. And ever since they've been transitioning into something else. But the question is, what else? Like, what exactly are they going to become? Because they've tapped out the export system. So one thing people are often not aware of, but if you're not like you know, the United States or France or these countries that have kind of been wealthy and powerful for a long time, the only countries right. that have developed since 1945 did it based off of exports. So they yeah. exported things to, you know, they exported, you know, they kind of start at the bottom, you, you export batteries, you export radios, you export other stuff, and you kind of move all the way up and you export primarily to the United States and Western Europe. This is what I was talking about. We have production and consumption all around the world, and you can sort of tie into the system, tap into it, kind of develop and invest into your country and level up, skill up your population, you kind of move up. It's a rare thing though. It doesn't happen in a lot, it happened in very few places. Uh, but that's what China also did. And China's challenge has been that era has ended. And now it has to yeah. increase, it has to get a healthy, you know, per capita income, healthy lifestyle for 1.2-ish billion people. The headline number is probably a lie about how many people they have. So I kind of right. adjusted it for people. Well, and it is true. They kind of helped, uh, not help, they kind of hurt themselves environmentally too. You know, we, we look at ourselves and say our industrialization, you know, can be hurtful. But, you know, I've seen reports where there's entire towns and villages that just have literally unbreathable air. Yeah, it's from insane from all the factories because, you know, and we all know a lot of American companies, a lot of Western companies will do all their manufacturing in China and people have to remember, well, if you're running factories, there's always going to be some sort of, you know, there's a negative side effect to that. Did you get to, get to see any of that when you were there or? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, what's crazy about China is that you go to a big Chinese, let, Forget the name brand cities, right? Like Beijing, Shanghai, right? You go to like other cities yeah. that are just as big and they're all these giant, almost cookie cutter, identical looking massive industrial cities. And they're all in a cloud of like small, of like a grayish smog. Um, and it gets a little horrifying after a while, but you know, the truth is that we're very much kind of complicit in this whole thing. What happened oh, is absolutely. all these there's companies, no kind of. <laughs> yeah, all these companies that decided, hey, well, we can't, there's, envi there's an environmental movement brewing in the United States and Western Europe. So we're going to take all our, of our production and send it to China. And what China did is said, sure, we're going to give you no environmental regulations. We're going to give you no labor regulations. We're going to give you nothing. You're not going to have to play healthcare for your employees. You're not going to have to play into social, you don't have to do anything. Just build some stuff here. Do you know? it. Yeah. And so that's how they did. So they collected all of the stuff, all the processing, all the, you know, the reason we have rare earth, you know, China makes all the rare earth, uh, you know, process all the rare earth uh, metals and stuff. And the reason it does all the lithium processing, all these things that people are worried about, it's all, all the supply chains are rooted in China. It's because, yeah, because people didn't want to do a lot of this stuff because it's so dirty <laughs> anywhere else. And they were able to do it at rock bottom prices. And then they sort of flooded the market to knock out everybody, all the competition. But that's sort of a, a later part of the equation but you know and it, it's important to remember like you said early on though they were trying to develop so and i yeah. think india has done the same thing if i'm not mistaken i he I hear the same stories out of india is you know now they're basically destroying the environment around them because yeah. they're just trying to you know hyper industrialize was the term someone said to me before yeah india is not going to be as successful as china it's not going to succeed the way china did i kind of like the reason i'm saying it's not because india is inferior in any way it's just because that era where you can do this export process export led mm -hmm. industrialization is what's called is uh it's past so what india right. is trying to do and also india is a much more difficult country it doesn't have a central authority it's harder to reinvest in its various things um but they are having, they have the worst uh, air pollution in particular in the world. And there's, you know, it's the Himalayas, it's the tropical climate, it's the coal use. There's a lot of factors, but it's really bad there. Um, and it's, 
not probably going to get better either, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, because not everyone's, I don't, I don't, I don't think everyone is as convinced about, you know, what's going on with the environment, especially if it's right there in their backyard, they still don't want to believe, Hey, we can't keep doing this. Yeah. I agree with that. I'd say it's, it is a bit different in really um, undeveloped or less developed countries. I, I really agree with that here. But in a place like China, for example, just to give an example, when I was there, I was in Beijing and I was getting a massive lecture on um, actually the agriculture system in China. So you're looking at all the maps of where they produce this food and this food and that food. And I was, you know, it was basically explained. It was like, well, China can never, never actually consume as much meat as the United States because it literally doesn't have the land to grow it for the number of people that it has. And right. there's something very similar, I mean, with food and with the climate stuff, it's often related to energy, where just getting, keeping the power on in a place like India or China is such a monumental challenge due to the size and the scale that they, I mean, historically, they just haven't even believed. China, for example, thought global warming and climate change, anything related to those terms, was a total hoax perpetrated by the West to stifle China's rise. And around 2013, 14, 15, it became so apparent to the population. It became apparent uh, to the government how bad the environmental problems there were. So it kind of got on the train, also saw export opportunities with solar and stuff, but that's how it saw it. And for a country like India, they just don't see a way to get rid of their coal use in any, in any way. I mean, in a lot of countries don't have the opportunity to do solar or wind the way you know, the United States does. You know, most, uh, like in China, for example, all the major solar generating regions are sort of in the northwest of China, these massive deserts and basins and stuff, hundreds of miles away and mountain chains away from the population centers. So they have to right. do, they have to reconfigure their whole electricity grid. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a trillion, that's a, at least a trillion dollars to do this project. And what the problem with China is that they've tapped out a lot of their financial resources. Like we're so used to thinking of China as just having endless money. All right, a new bridge, a new city, a new this, a new that. <laughs> but there are limits to these things. And, you know, in their case, what's happening in China right now is they're saying, okay, we got to fix our agriculture system. Because like you said, this environmental catastrophe in China has hit worse. The worst, the place it's hit the worst is actually agriculture and the environment. And basically the way China's fed its people is by juicing the land. Like I literally mean steroids. Like they, they basically juice the land with agro, you know, with industrial chemicals to increase yields. And that's the the only reason they've been able to keep up with population growth in the country. But that, you do that long enough and you start to mess with the basic inherent fertility and stability and resilience of the land. And that's what they've done. They've also paved over a lot of their best farmland because they've had to build all this stuff. So it's a, a disaster. Here, here's a, an image that might help. You know how in the US we have the Midwest kind of in, in the middle west of the country? Yeah. And then yeah. we have like, you know, Baltimore and we have like, you know, New York and Washington, the big megalopolis in the Northeast. In China, right. you have the Midwest. Right on top of it is their major population center. They're on top of each other. So every every piece of land that you put a factory in, you're losing the farmland. It, it's they're not separated. So it's just a everything is on top of each other, and that's you know that's another reason why all these agricultural, I mean these environmental problems, they don't hit one thing. They hit everything, and they're in everyone's face. So it's a really really bad situation. So are, you're you're basically saying they're building factories in farmland and still running the farm Correct. alongside the factories? Correct. And there'd be, there'll be like industrial runoff like right next to it. I mean, at least here we try to negate that. I mean, I know it happens. I've seen some, <laughs> I've seen some things about Teflon, which hmm. ugh, very disturbing next to farms, but yeah. at least, you know, there are, there are always people who sound the alarm and we at least try to clean it up. Oh but, yeah. But remember there, like I said, they, they, they said, we don't have environmental regulations when everyone was putting in all the, the stuff, right? Like, oh, put the yeah. factory right here. So you can't really, like we have zoning. There, there's no real zoning kind of stuff in China, the way we we're talking about here. It's, it's a very different sort of process. So it's like, it's, you're stuck with it, really. I mean, you can't, can't move it, can't move the farm, you know, you can't. So that's the way it looks. Well, it, it is, it's interesting. You mentioned how we think, well, China has all this money. China has all this money. And I think a lot of that is due to, I mean, I'm just going to cut to the chase. There's a lot of political banter that goes on all the time. And we just hear it all the time. We're led to believe, well, America is in debt to China because China has all this money and China is doing all these terrible things. And I 
whenever I hear things, I always think to myself personally, I know there's another story behind there somewhere else. Because a lot of times, I'm not saying that people are just flat out lying. I think they, you know, they say what they say for for their own gain and whatnot and to possibly just try to get attention. Yeah. So I like to think, no, there's another story there because I, I find it hard to believe that, well, China's just this evil megalopolis, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, especially the people. You know, I know governments do and say one thing, but the, when you drill down to the people, I always find that often they are not necessarily in agreement. No, no. I mean, the, the Chinese government and Chinese people are different, although realistically, you can't have one without the other. That when mm-hmm. the Chinese government fails, you tend to have mass chaos in China, kind of like you don't see anywhere else on earth, just massive violence. Um, but yeah, the the thing about what's going on now, just because at different periods you know, in the 1980s and the 70s and 90s, 2000s, there's different narratives going along with China and what we were thinking about them. Oh, they're just making our cheap stuff and they're not a problem. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, oh, and there's, you know, basically slave labor in all these factories and stuff. And but but it's fine. We have cheap goods or whatever. You, know, you had all these different things at different times. Now what's happened is you have um, you have so many problems. You have you know actual you know forced labor in Xinjiang, which is you know a genocide and all that kind of stuff. You have all these problems kind of spiraling out of control. But what's going on in particular, particular with U.S. politics in China, is starting around you know five, six-ish years ago, is the whole U.S. government is using right and left really for the primarily the right originally then the left said no nah, you're not playing you're not the only one playing this game and then now back and forth and escalating is everyone yeah. is just trying to use china to motivate whatever behavior they want in the united states so if you're the u.s military you china is the reason you exist right now there's a recent general i mean recent u.s air force uh general just said if it doesn't scare china why bother right and when mm. they're in terms of weapons development and all that kind of stuff right and so what you're saying, you see that is with the space race too, like the space race. It's like we need to go back to the moon because China might go there, right? We need to go. We need <laughs> we to have the solar planets. With the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, this is what's happening. It's basically trying to create. I mean, because in a lot of ways, the U.S. is so, I you know, we're off in North America, not paying attention, not knowing much yep. about the rest of the world, not particularly caring until like something hits us in the face and we freak out, or you know, all this kind of stuff. This is what's going on. So now everyone's trying to use China to rev up the United States. Hey, you know, perform like because people, you know, in a real in a real way, if you have a competitor, then you can you compete more. You know, you actually try and you wake up early. Try you try harder. You try yeah. harder. So we're basically getting a lot of that. So everything you're going to see, whether it's China, the financial system, the military, the social policy, all these things are going to be China's terrible. Uh, we need to be better than them. We need to confront them. We need to do this. We need to do that. And you know, in, in some areas, a lot of this is true. But the general gist of it is a political class that is trying to keep right you know keep the you you know get the country to kind of focus on what it thinks the eight ball is after kind of messing mm-hmm. around in the middle east and all that uh but personally i think the chinese system is uh it, it can't sustain itself for long on its own so everyone's worried about china like going out and like con- you know you know ships you know chinese ships are going to be off the coast of california where i am it's like no come on <laughs> this is not this is not well, what's they, happening. well then they they got those hypersonic missiles now that's a real thing. Yeah. So I did a video on yeah. that. I mean, but again, this is the way just based on sort of the military geography and strategy of, you know, the United States and China, the country that would use hypersonic missiles to the most effective in the most effective way would actually be the United States. Like we're going to use it basically to complement the global expeditionary war that we conduct all over the world to basically launch missiles all over and hit people within seconds. I mean, this is kind of what we've been doing for since the 90s, at least with, you know, with yeah. the Tomahawks. And China's very different. Like China is surrounded by enemies. So people, this is just kind of the basic thing I like to give people a sense of because it's like the United States, we're surrounded by Mexico and Canada. And 0% of the US military even thinks about Mexico and Canada. It's not oriented Mm -hmm. to Mexico and Canada. It's not about fighting Mexico and Canada. It has nothing to do with it. China is very, very different. It has Russia and India and Japan and Vietnam and South Korea and North Korea and, and Taiwan, all these things all around it. You know, China has more neighbors than any other country, and half of its neighbors claim some of its territory. And we can go over old history and all this stuff, but this is a really large um, scale for the Chinese state to be in, the modern incarnation of China that we see. So it has conflicts with most of its neighbors. And to deal with that, 
you know, for China to break out and become a global superpower, whatever it is, or to dominate the globe, to dominate the oceans and you know, do all this kind of stuff, you have to first punch your way past South Korea and Japan and Taiwan and Vietnam and even the Philippines. And you have to do all this, like, well, everything's peachy inside your country, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> like these countries, you know, they're right across the street. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's, yeah. the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and Afghanistan was Mexico. You know, it's like, we probably have a lot more problems here. I mean, because yep. they could basically just start blowing things up in Beijing and Shanghai, all these countries. So it's a, it's a very different world over there. But we're so used to the United States. We think China's like the United States. We think, oh my God, they're getting powerful. They're coming for us. Like, like we tend to do <laughs> we, for other we countries. Do that. I, I feel like that's always the U.S. response. We see a country growing. It's, oh, they're going to come and get us next. Yeah, well, you know, the, the deep U.S. strategy, as you know, every nation sort of, you know, springs from the ground up and they have certain features that are, you know, a, a part of who they are. So, for example, a country like Japan doesn't even have an army. It has zero right. army. Why? Because it's a bunch of islands, right? A country, you know, and these, that's obviously a very simple example, but it's useful for people because things are very different. And what the United States is doing, you know, with our whole military and stuff is basically we go, the country looks around, it looks at all the rest of the world, and it looks for some regional power that wants to become a global power. That is what it's, that is what we look out for. And whenever we see something that even stinks of that, we freak out and we try and stop them. Right, because we want to keep our <laughs> and position, out, uh, and then start demonizing them. Oh yeah, that's oh, part of the game. They're doing, they're doing this, they're doing that. Uh, it's always intellectual espionage. You know, they're stealing our our technology. Yada yada yada. Which that you is know, true. There could be some truth to that. <laughs> that one's yeah, there's true. truth to that. But uh, but still, but the you French know, and the Israelis steal our technology too. They're notorious. Yeah, that's for what doing I was going to say. Yeah. It, it's not just them. That's you know, but you know, we we get laser focused, like you said, in this one country. Yeah, and it's typically. And, and I'm glad. You, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's typically when the country hits around 67, you know, two thirds of U.S. GDP, not like in mm -hmm. not in per, you know, you know, in overall like GDP. That's about when it happened. That's when it happened with Japan in the 1980s, Soviet Union in a similar time. It's uh, it's it's the it's the game, right? It's the this is the same old show in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it it is. Um, I mean, I grew up through the eighties and so I, I remember a lot of that Soviet union stuff and it, and every time I hear all this rhetoric about China, it just, it reminds me of that. And then to see them parading these missiles around, that just reminds me of when, uh, the Soviets used to parade missiles around. Oh, now they got these nuclear missiles. We need to build more. They build more. We need to build more. And then we end up in the stalemate again, but what would you think? Because this kind of stuff always basically frustrates me with all governments. Why not not act that way? You know, why not not make enemies of all your neighbors? Why not turn that around? What would you think China should do to say, you know what, let's stop fighting with everybody. Let's all work on getting along. What, what do so, you think? Where, where should they start? Well, I, I, that stuff I don't think works. I think the truth is that these countries, they're trying to protect the basic integrity of their, their, their demography, their, their geography, their population. So a, a good example is Germany. You know, Germany, you know, starting in the 1850s, you know, the second half of the 19th century, it just repeatedly fought multiple wars with everyone in every direction. You know, it fought France, and then it fought, you know, then it fought, you know, World War One. then it fought France and uh, Russia in World War One. sorry, France and the Franco-Prussian War, and then France and Russia mm -hmm. in World War One. They did the exact same thing in World War Two. And it's not because all the Germans are dumb. Germans are not dumb. They're not like oh, repeated no. doing this over and over again. But what happens is you get to a point, your country develops, and all the countries in that region have their own, the same way the United States is looking out and looking for regional powers. You know, Britain has been doing something very similar in Europe for, a dec for hundreds of years. And Germany has been trying to consolidate itself, even though it has a very weak military security situation for hundreds of years. And I mean, not really hundreds, 150 for them. But, but what happens is that there's just a, uh, a character to each country that is embedded in particularly in the land and the geography that just says, hey, this is a giant mountain chain. So for example, it's a giant mountain chain between India and China. They've never really fought a major war because you can't, because you actually can't. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, India and Pakistan are right. They, they basically share two river systems and they are forced into conflict. You cannot- Constantly almost. Yeah, you cannot r remove this stuff. So the, the deeper question, I mean, one way I look at it, a very noble way to look at what the United States did after 1945 is to say, hey, what the U.S. kind of did is it opened up the ability for all sorts of countries to develop around the world. 
and to it tamp down the regional hostilities that used to prevent it or used to create little empires here, little you know mm-hmm. grand poobahs there, and all that kind of stuff. The you know that that kind of stuff was you know paused in a lot of ways around the world. So things like you know India and Pakistan, these two countries for a long time, the fact they didn't go to a major war. I mean, the closest the U.S. got, the, the world got to nuclear war was probably India and Pakistan back in the, mm-hmm. in the late 20th century. So it's a it's a real thing, but it, it's tough. The U.S. basically tried to do what, kind of what we're talking about. How would China stop fighting, you know, other people around it? The fact that China and Japan and South Korea are all there and they're not fighting right now is a miracle, you know? There's Japan brutally, brutally messed with China in the 20th century. The, what Which happens? Is, uh, I always find that kind of ironic. I mean, Japan's what this big, yeah. <laughs> no, know? and it, it's, it's like wow, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it, it's an interesting, curious thing because it's telling us something about China, right? If that could even happen, right? There's there's something mm-hmm. different, um, but it's a very interesting thing we could talk about. But yeah, that that's what's going on. So what's happening now? Part of the reason everyone looks around the world, they're like everything seems to be going. To hell in a handbasket, basically everywhere they see, they see the Middle East, they see it everywhere. You just seem like every, it seems like all the ties that were keeping things together, everything is fraying, and in a lot of mm-hmm. ways that is what's happening. So I wouldn't try and suggest like how a country cannot get into permanent hostilities with people around it. I think what we're unfortunately going to see is the return of a lot of hostilities that actually weren't around for a long time. Uh, and I think China is a great example. Like I said, it has all these neighbors, has all these enemies, and the reason it didn't go to war with any of them is because it was part of this U.S. system starting in the late 1970s. Even though, you know, obviously we're angry at them and this and that. Uh, we Everything that comes into the port of L.A. is basically from China. So <laughs> the anger is not a little different than we're usually talking about. It's our consumerism anger. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it almost sounds like <laughs> it's, it's like the United States is in the middle of all of it. It's like, is we this are. our fault? We yeah. I mean, we... Is it our, you know, we tried. It's like we tried to remake the world in a lot of ways. Um, it's interesting. I have a I have a book uh, that I've been editing and trying to put out, and there's a chapter in it early on called The Imperial Past. And I just talk about how what the U.S. tried to do in the 20th century. Kind of like I like I said, kind of getting behind the curtain of like not what this president did or this, that, but, you know, the, 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 the broad sweep. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very impressive, but you can't – every country can't be – you know, wealthy. It can't be even successful. It can't even be, in, you know, functioning as a, as a country. Um, like right now, right. what's a crazy thing is people aren't really talking about it, but the country of Lebanon is basically disappearing, like kind of before everyone's eyes. You know, the pop, the economy has cratered. The, the educated uh, professional population in the country, the class has basically left. They've fled. And mm. the government hasn't been functioning. The political you know, system hasn't functioned for a year and a half now. There's massive, you know, refugees coming in from Syria. There's a, you know, Hezbollah, which is a sort of terrorist organization that runs part of the southern part of the country, is, you know, trying to maintain order in its own realm. And the the many, many, you know, ethnic and religious and political and social differences and between all the different groups in Lebanon, which is just a small place, they're all cracking up. And it, it, we're getting to a place where, I mean, this can't really put Humpty Dumpty back together again after a while. Mm-hmm. Um and unfortunately, it's tough to talk about this stuff. We don't get a good kind of read on the way countries are and what they're made of and kind of where they're headed if when we just read the news. And like you said, right. we're getting fed all these narratives about what's up with China. And like, if you hear about the Middle East, you'll just be like, well, will Biden succeed on his uh, nuclear deal or this kind of thing? It's like, <laughs> you know, there's other things going on in this narrative. The Iran, yeah, the Iran nuclear deal. And, you know, it's funny I remember we used to hear about Lebanon all the time, it seemed like, in the 80s and part of the 90s. And you just said that that country's name. I swear I haven't thought about Lebanon. And <laughs> wow, I can't even remember. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. 
Voluntary Input is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. But we're talking about China. So (laughs) now you're going to make my brain go off on a tangent. I'm going to have to go look up some stuff about Lebanon now when we're done. Um, Yeah, check it out, man. It's crazy what's going on. Bam, we'll get back to China. (laughs) Yeah, let's go back to China. What about... um, uh, Also, another story we don't seem to hear a lot about anymore is the Chinese... uh, The China-Hong Kong relationship. You have any information? What's been going on with them? Yeah, so... You know, people are interested. I have a three-part series called Battlefield Hong Kong. Uh, it's on my podcast. Mm. It's called China Unraveled. People can check it out. So it's cool. And it gives a, the full sweep of like, where did Hong Kong come from? Because Hong Kong didn't exist in Chinese history. Spoiler, it didn't exist before the yeah. 19th century. You know, the, the British created it and they created it for a very specific reason. And then it had its role and then it changed in the 1970s and it became part of this whole thing. And now it's it's been going back and forth. But anyway, Hong Kong was given to back to uh, China in the 1990s. And ever since, it's been a very tenuous, like, what exactly kind of relationship do we have? Because China mm-hmm. doesn't, deep down, the Chinese state can't abide any random little city-state not being a part of it. Like, this whole thing was a farce. I and mean, it wasn't a farce. It's like, you kind of couldn't, you kind of had to do what you had to do. But well, when you when you look at a map of China, and then you see Hong yeah, Kong, again, it's like, well, yeah, that's China. <laughs> exactly. But the problem is that Hong Kong has its history is actually not Chinese in the sense it's like it was always yeah. it was basically refugees and uh, commercial enterprise all these things that were associated with the British and its entire culture and history and economic system is is different and it tied into China starting in the 1970s and it had a really big relationship with the the sort of a Pearl River Delta export center right across the the bay but it doesn't have a future in the world that's coming. It, like China, Hong Kong's role is to be a borderland between in an interface between China and the West. That was its role. That's what all the banks are for. That's what the the professional organizations. That's what the shipping companies. That's what everything is for. It was to do that role, and it did that extremely well. And that's why it got insanely wealthy, right? It's like mm-hmm. during the last you know from 1978 to you know 2008, if you were helping to facilitate the growth of China. And everything was filtering, you know, funneling, all the money was moving through you and all the ports. It's like, of course you got rich, <laughs> right? That's right. a big part. <laughs> but China doesn't need that role in the same way. And Hong Kong is now, like frictions are now appearing. Because that same borderland status that Hong Kong had is now no longer a benefit, but a massive problem. Because, you know, what's happening is companies are basically leaving Hong Kong. They're, you know, they're doing it quietly, they're doing it peacefully, they're doing it whatever, but they're fleeing because all of the institutions that you needed to, to have that role. So British maritime law, U- US style common law, um, mm-hmm. all the legal system, all, all that kind of stuff. It was, you know, it depends on that kind of quasi separate status, but that stuff is is gone in the, the China that's coming. And so that, that's kind of what's happening with Hong Kong. So the story, I mean, we're going to try and hear like, oh, there's, you're not getting freedom in, in, in Hong Kong. I'm sorry. I don't see how, I don't see how, yeah. And just to be clear, the Hong Kong, like there are like a dozen, you know, big, uh, you know, port cities on the Chinese southern coast. They're kind of like Hong Kong, not as well known. Uh, the last thing the, the Chinese Communist Party wants is a independent Hong Kong that starts mouthing off, that starts protesting. People start running in the streets, that tries to talk about independence. This could easily lead a fire to a firestorm of similar behavior, mm-hmm. um, or it could at least encourage this sort of behavior all in this southern coastal region of China, which is historically a separatist region in a lot of ways. It's never been fully integrated into the, the big China, red China we see on the map. And Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. So a lot of what I talk about is the different pieces of China and how they fit together or don't fit together. So the same way in the United States, we have you know the Midwest and we have Florida and there's California and, and all these things. They, came in, they became a part of the country at different times. They have different cultures. They have different economies. They have different relationships to the rest of the world. There's something very similar with China. And part of the reason, if you look at Chinese history, you'll see like China becomes big and powerful empire. China breaks into pieces. China becomes a big and powerful <laughs> empire. China breaks into pieces. What's happening is that these different regions are not coming together easily or comfortably or at all. And so a lot of what's 
you know, very likely going to happen for China going forward is that the tensions between all of these regions are going to start to bubble up again. And a very big one is the one we're talking about, which is the Southern China uh, region. So this Southern China, basically from Shanghai down to Hong Kong and like up a bit, <laughs> you know, up into all a right. bit of right? Um, it's a super mountainous region. So when I was there, I was just stunned. You, you get, these are the you see in parts of it, the karst formations, it looks like Avatar. Like you see yeah. like, go, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's crazy. But this region is not really well connected into China with its uh, food system, with its energy grid, with uh, even the transportation linkages. All this stuff is different because it's just so, it's so, it's so out there. It's kind of like in Alaska or something, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it is yeah. just not as integrated. And historically, these, these places have um, had to fend for themselves. So they have different languages. They speak different, there's different ethnicities. There's all this kind of stuff there. So Hong Kong, they actually don't speak. They don't speak the Mandarin of, of Northern China. The, the, right. the, the, China the, the Chinese that we call Chinese is a dialect that was developed in, around Beijing, but they speak, um, right? They speak Cantonese there. So totally, it's a, mm. a mutually unintelligible language, right? <laughs> in China, they call it a dialect because they're trying to make the Chinese people seem like one big happy family. And oh, these are just right. dialects. No. They're mutually unintelligible, which is the definition of a different language. Uh, so, <laughs> it's almost like tribalism. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, they're kind of like separate tribes. Um, yeah. Would you say? See, I I have this problem. I'll let you know. I I'm a consummate peacemaker. I try mm-hmm. to look for the. We got to find the 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 the. You know, we've got to find the good side to this. Would you? Would you say maybe the Communist Party is probably the problem here, or no, or is it well, just more deep rooted than that? All of these separate, yeah, like should China just break up into separate small countries? I mean, I I don't know. So this is this is probably where I differ from most China people. Everyone wants to focus on the Communist Party, and the Communist Party, mm-hmm. the Chinese Communist Party, is a pretty heinous organization. It's done really really terrible things. Although it did build the modern China, so we don't need to get into that. But <laughs> it, it's, it's not a place you never want to be under their thumb. Let's just put it that way. Uh, no. The the difference is though. Let's say it hadn't been the Communist Party. Let's say the Nationalists had won in 1949. Right, the other group that went to Taiwan. If they wanted to achieve the results in the the society and the, the sort of industrialized, modern, advanced country that China is in a lot of ways, especially on the coast now, you can only do this if you end up with an authoritarian megastate that looks like. The current Chinese Communist Party, like the reason, the reason that China, that the you know that modern China is an authoritarian megastate, isn't because it's communist, it's because it's China. That like if you if you don't have that, you the country will break into pieces. And to answer your question, can these pieces be their own separate countries? No, they tend to war. So what happens is you get a warlord that forms again and again in very specific regions, and they war again and again with the regions around them. This pattern has been going on for three thousand years. That's where we got some of the greatest movies. Yeah. <laughs> about the warlords and the, you know, the fighting and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's fascinating, really, because, you know, from what I know of China, just from what I've seen, it seems like a, a beautiful country. I do want to go yeah, someday just to go, you know, it, but, and then it's sad when you hear all this stuff. It's like, man, how can something so beautiful be so volatile in a way? You know, it's unfortunate. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm putting together a course and, and the book and a lot of things I do trying to explain at a deeper level why some of this happens. Typically, in, you know, in a, in a quick kind of conversation, I, I sound too like weirdly systematic and autistic for people to actually listen to me if I kind of go into it. But it, there's good reasons for this stuff. And if we want to have the answers to try and, like you said, do do some peacemaking here and kind of prevent this stuff from happening, maybe move forward. Um, the A lot of the solutions or the answers are just very different when we look at what's going on. And some of them, you know, th- these are things that require decades, you know, and kind of mm-hmm. organic processes and new technologies that don't exist and stuff like that. Um, I think China put in maybe the best effort <laughs> ever of any country, you know, you know, the scale of what it did. I mean, the reason, like we said, the infrastructure, all the stuff it was building, you know, re- redefining the language, all of these things. This is China trying to prevent the same thing that's happened to every other Chinese state ever. Right. And like I said, in the late 1970s, they were looking, they were staring. It was, it was the barrel of the gun was in their face. Right. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the way to think about it. Um, so they needed something. And they, you know, they they used all of the tools of the industrial and later the digital world to try and, and make this work. And what happened after 2008 and, you know, 2012, when Xi Jinping gained power is basically just based on the behavior of the Chinese state and the government. 
you can see that what they've decided is that, you know, this did, the answer wasn't democracy and let's, you know, give different power to the different regions and try and all be a happy family in some new system. No, the answer is the same one ever. It's we basically need a dictatorship. We need someone to hold the reins and it needs to be, we need top down control. Otherwise we're going to see mm -hmm. massive firestorms like that no military and no 95 million person communist party can put out, right? There's, a, there's a, over a billion people in China, right? Yeah. Okay. I wish I could give you something more optimistic, right? <laughs> I could tell, you know, and, and I'll be honest, uh, you know, the way I looked at it, when I first got into China, I was first like, oh my God, there's going to be a whole, you know, big conflict between the US and China. And like, this is around a long time ago. This is 2001, you know, and then the Iraq War, 2001, 2003, when I really got into this stuff for the first time. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be a huge war. What's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to learn more about China. I'm like, oh, there's, it's a little different than I thought. And so first I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like a warrior kind of thing. Like, let's figure out what's going on. And then it was like, okay, can we make this work here? <laughs> like, so literally, I went from like, right. should we fight them? Like, can we make, can their thing work and be more humane? And then when I finally exactly. realized that wasn't possible, the, 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 where the, the place I'm at now is, okay, if that can't happen, then the next best thing is to try and transmit some of the wisdom, the real wisdom and human achievement that China has, you know, reached over the millennia and try and at least communicate what's going on to a wider audience because now everyone associates China with, you know, the, the authoritarian megastate and, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, Chinese civilization writ, writ large, broadly has achieved some, you know, things you know, psychologically, culturally, all this that like, the, the, your brain, you know, our brains would explode if we kind of fully process some of it is my right, thing. Right. So hopefully when some of the stuff is gone, I can get more into that stuff because I think that that's where if you can't make peace, if you can't, you don't need to make war. If you can't make peace, uh, the next thing you could do is, <laughs> I don't know, make some sort of wisdom out of this, make some sort of something that can maybe endure because we're going to have to explain how China, you know, rose the way it did. And then most likely also how and why it fell and what this means mm -hmm. for everything going forward. So it sounded like you went from optimist to realist is what happened is once you got there, it was like, well, the reality of it is this. Yeah. And I'm glad you've, you've shared so much that you have, because I feel like, and myself included, we all kind of have these misconceptions about, oh, China, you know, it's always just like this dark, spooky superpower of China, you know, but then when you drill down, like you have, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Problem with it, it's just, it's so big and old and complex, right? That just, mm -hmm. just try to simplify things for people. It took a while to make things simple, simple that you can understand. And it's not wrong. Right, it's not a hundred percent correct because you gotta, you know, make it s short and sweet. But at least it, you know, gives people a sense of of more of what's going on. And let, get, you get a sense of the intricacies, but you don't get lost in them or lost in the details. Right. That's the worst part with China. You're like, all right, let me go learn something. It's like, holy hell, there's a there's a chronicle like two thousand years long, <laughs> and there's so many details, there's so many emperors, there's so many things. I don't even know what's going on. I'm done with it. Leave it to somebody else. Uh, right. So that's that's a good thing. And I'm glad you pointed out a lot of dates because I feel like sometimes people think, and I've heard people say, well, that's just China. That's how they've always been. Uh, no, they haven't always been that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, Especially considering what you just shared. Yeah, they haven't always been that way, quote unquote. No, I mean, there's there's a lot. We, you know, we didn't get into a lot of the ancient Chinese history, but I, I definitely did the, the work to, to explain that to people. And also what's interesting in China, history is the master subject, if that makes sense. They believe... In China, they believe that history is like the key to everything, basically. And big, oh, I can agree with them. Yeah, no, for, I, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually do agree with that in a lot of ways. Uh, the the challenge for Chinese history is that it is such a mess, even for them to understand. Like, and just just to be you know some history again is like in the late nineteenth century was when we first started doing archaeology and you know modern archaeology, anthropology, geography, and started to really map China. Right before it was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't modern tools, right? And so mm -hmm. they started to they started to see like what ancient China really looked like. They started to see what was really, you know, a mythical story and what was really something that happened. And this has, you know, to this day, every single year, all across China, all the newspapers, they put out like the greatest archaeological finds of the year, right? They're obsessed <laughs> with it, totally obsessed with uh -huh. it. But the weird thing that happened is that the the realizations about what ancient China really looked like are so inimical and so so against what the Chinese Communist Party and any any Chinese government is trying to do and trying to 
create for the country, they had to tamp down the entire real story because it is just too threatening. <laughs> so you get in this weird place. Where that the, sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. That sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> but, but it's so weird. Like the country that believes history is the most important thing ever and is focuses yeah. on it is also the one that is like doing the most to, to, to like totally redo it in a lot of ways. So it's <sighs> like I said, governments, it's always governments. I swear every time, yeah. because if, it, if, if you really have a free thinking society and you confront your history, just let it flow. Let it be what it is. I mean, but then the government gets afraid and then they tamp down on it. Yeah. And so much gets lost. And that, yeah. That's the unfortunate part to me too, as well. But realistically, I mean, a lot of, well, Oh, go for it. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, realistically, a lot of countries, like I was saying, they often have to construct their history because the real history is too brutal. Like, it's too, like, <laughs> it's like we need a mythical history about how amazing, you know, the ancestors were and everything because if we tell the real history, that doesn't even feel like a history. It just feels like a bloody mess and you don't even know what to do with <laughs> it's it. It's a horror movie. Yeah, it's just a horror movie. It's like, uh, should I get, like, the epic of Gilgamesh or just, like, endless violence in modern Iraq? I don't know, like... <laughs> Well, the one other, one other, uh, one other region there we touched on real quick, but we kind of left them out. Taiwan. What's yeah. Taiwan's place in all of this now? Well, I'll give something. Another little dose of history is always really useful. So this isn't the first time that a, a Chinese government, you know, a Chinese government that lost power fled to the island of Taiwan. This is actually exactly hmm. what happened in the 17th century during the sort of Ming Qing War, civil war, and transition. The big, you know, southern bunch of people from southern China fled to Taiwan. And it was a whole war and they had to figure it all out. But what's going on? So this is, again, I'm just bringing this up because it's an ancient pattern, right? And we're so used to thinking about just the modern look of it all. But yeah, the, the gist of Taiwan is that Beijing, the same reason that Hong Kong can't be, you know, just a little island that's separate from China. Same thing with Taiwan, you know. Beijing is so focused on keeping all the pieces of China together that to have an island that big just sitting there totally exempt from mainland rule is just unthinkable. And the only reason Taiwan exists is because the U.S. Navy protected it, right? Yeah. The Chinese have not had for 75 years any capacity to pierce through um, the U.S. naval uh, shield, basically, that protects Taiwan. And... That again, so the big, you know, a, a major, you know, this is actually one of the places if people want to know a place where a major military conflict is possible. Taiwan is the place. This is no longer, uh, this is so deeply ingrained in the Chinese political classes efforts to, to keep the country together. It's so deeply a part of Chinese history. It's been so propagandized for so long. And you do have a, a massively expanding Chinese military that can do something right on its doorstep. Um, but, you know, this is where, I don't know, we didn't get all this stuff, but this is where, well, what does the United States do? And what does Japan do? And what does South Korea do? And what happens to the whole semiconductor in global industry that's all based there? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> right. so, so that's a real thing. Uh, but as the Chinese government starts to struggle to maintain the standard of living uh, that it's been basically promising people, well, first that it's created and then it's still promising to a lot of people who are living on you know less than a couple dollars a day hundreds of millions of people that are living on less than a dollar, a couple dollars a day, you know, they need something to divert the attention. And China's been focused on nationalism. They gave up on Marxism, basically. And they just said, all right, nationalism it is, strength, power, that kind of stuff. Typical, like what you see actually kind of more right-wing governments, but it doesn't matter. It's all the same when you're a giant <laughs> mega state. Uh, right. And the, you know, the question is, will they actually make a move uh, against Taiwan? And it's just a complex calculus here. I mean, I'm trying to give people sort of the, the probabilities of what could happen. But if if things go, if they did conquer Taiwan, that would look really good. But it could also, it would destabilize the entire Chinese uh, nation. That's bad. But also if they lost a war to take Taiwan, which is also very likely, um, probably the, the, the Chinese government, which kind of runs on its credibility, it runs on its ability to deliver things and all the prosperity that it's brought, because there's no elections, right? Mm -hmm. So it just runs on this uh, appearance of, uh, strength and authority and success and competence. If it gets, if you lose a war, that's all gone. So this is part of the reason right. China hasn't fought a war since the 1970s, literally mm -hmm. not in half a century. So it's not like the U.S. military, which is always fighting. Um, it's you know, it's it hasn't done it. So there's a lot of hesitation, you know, in in the Communist Party about this question, but they could easily get pushed to do it. 
Um, I don't think they'd succeed also. I mean, it depends when it happens, but you know, it's a weird thing. You know, there's Taiwanese politics too. Like Taiwan's trying to, you know, I don't want to say play with the big boys, but this kind of what it's like. You want to have you know, big ships and you want to have fighters and all this, but it's like the second you get into a war with China, they destroy all of that. Uh, so right. it's kind of weird. But what, But if Taiwan got enough naval mines and enough, you know, missiles, basically, it could make it basically impossible to conquer that island. If you mine the Taiwanese Strait, because you need hundreds, you need to, to conquer an island, you know, amphibious operations, amphibious invasions, really, are the, perhaps the most complicated military uh, maneuver or operation that anyone conducts. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. They're, you know, D-Day, we, we remember that so poignantly because it was such a big thing and also in Chon during the, the Korean War. These are these are major events. Uh, mm -hmm. They're really hard. Uh, and if you can't, you have to send hundreds of ships. You have to bring fuel. You have to bring troops. You have to bring food. You have to, you know, you know, because after D-Day, they, they were constantly bringing ships ever, forever. If you mine the entire strait and you can't get ships through, you literally cannot sustain any force, you know, on the ground. You have to basically use helicopters. Mm. You have to try to do this entirely over the air. But, you know, the same reason that cargo ships, you know, 95% of, of global transport, of shipping, you know, global cargo is shipped at sea because you get these massive ships and super easy yeah if you had to fly every piece of cargo from china to the u.s instead of putting it through the port it wouldn't work so yeah we never get anything yeah you right. never get anything so it's a real dilemma and you know there's all sorts of stuff there's cyber war there's there's a lot of things that could come to play in this um but yeah i mean it it, it it'd be a real it'd be a real show unfortunately and i don't, I don't put it in that way but um, yeah, it's a real thing. Uh, you know, the Taiwanese situation is bad. It's really also, like I said, the fact that the U.S. military was really what kept Taiwan separate. Like, you know, Mao was shooting, launching missiles at it, and they had all these problems. Mm -hmm. And even even Bill Clinton, like this is bipartisan. Bill Clinton sailed uh, aircraft carriers between the Taiwan Strait, which is the in the, within the Taiwan Strait, yeah. which is between Taiwan and China. Like, imagine if a Chinese, <laughs> you know, military was, ship was off the coast of California, how we'd freak out. But that's something they've had to accept for so long because of the position they were in. Now you re you rev up all this nationalism. That's a much harder thing to accept. That's a much harder thing. You can't rev up all this nationalism and then allow the the horrible stain of the you know the nationalists in Taiwan to just persist forever. So their plan, I think, is to conquer it by 2035. So just to give people a you know, unfortunately, to give them a bit of a, a sense of, of where that's going, uh, and they want to be the number one nation. Uh, country in the world by 2049 which is the basically the 100th anniversary of the founding of the people's republic and that's kind of the timelines they're running on uh no obviously but what constitutes number one uh well you know they'd probably use i mean within the communist party be su substantially greater larger economy than the united states that's probably part of mm. it they would want to have more in influence in diplomatic and political affairs probably around the world to seem commensurate you know commensurate with their sort of new status and remember, the ancient so in ancient China, the system was called the tribute system. You basically had China as the center of the world, and you have all the other countries, and they all paid tribute to the emperor. Right? Every country you didn't have <laughs> right. you didn't have trade. You had like tribute missions, you had stuff like that. So, you know, there's a whole thing. I mean, it's often called like Han chauvinism. It's called all sorts of things where there's basically the sense that China is the center of the world and all this kind of stuff. And that was similar in Europe for a long time. Like, you know, for a long time, Rome. <laughs> the capital of, you know, the former Roman Empire, then Christianity, Catholic, that was the, you know, the center of, you know, Europe, which was the center of the world, which was in the, on Earth, which was the right. center of the solar system and all this kind of stuff. Right. And they got cracked <laughs> up by the, you know, the scientific revolution, you know, the discovery of America, all that kind of stuff. America's like all gone. China, again, it didn't quite have the same thing. I mean, in Chinese, a lot of the Chinese perspective is just like, oh, we had a brief fall from grace starting in the 19th century and now we're about to rise up all the way to the top once more and the rest of the world's gonna have to deal with it so i don't think that's going to happen and so i don't pay much attention to it but that is definitely part of the psychology because again like i said earlier you got to stop making enemies of all your neighbors first i mean how are you going to be i mean people aren't just going to bow down to you just just because you want them to i know right <laughs> i mean you think so oh, wow you are great you're right <laughs> that's just not going to happen so yeah that's a yeah. um and, you know, taking everything into account that you've explained and we hear all this demonization of China on, you know, our media, blah, blah, blah. And we even hear people say we got to stop China, stop China. Technically, in a way, wouldn't it be in the United States best interest to make sure 
that the Chinese, uh, the Communist Party stays put. I mean, like you said, they're kind of the glue holding it all together. Yeah. We kind of don't want them to go then, right? So, yeah, I'll get, this is a little secret for your audience, but this is the basic position that the U.S. had through through the 90s and, you know, U.S. So both, you know, so this is what Biden, for example, this is what he believed starting in the 1990s. You know, everyone saw China. They saw it was trying to develop. They saw the problems that could happen. And, you know, they, they're actually willing to support it. They said, yeah, there's terrible things. Yeah, there's all this stuff. But the... The chaos that happens when the the center can no longer hold in China. We're talking. Go. You look at history. Just go look at it. It's like hundreds of years of warfare and chaos and violence. Is is what's happened. So, the U.S. political class for a long time was willing to, um, you know, accept this because they thought the alternative was bad. And this started to change 2001. This started to change as China started to really develop. But we got distracted in the Middle East and all this. So, now it's really coming back. So I'm. You know, my I personally think China is going to you know face plant once more uh, is probably the mm-hmm. way to put it, and it's going to do that on its own. And it's clearly, I think it's already you can see that based on the way its diplomatic corps is trying to act like we're the big guy, everyone needs to uh, sort of obey us. They have this whole wolf warrior diplomacy, which is hey, let's uh, <laughs> we're going to just demand things and you know be a, as belligerent as possible, and everyone's going to put up with it, and it'll be totally great. So that's not working, and the economic system is is, is having major trouble. The, you know, energy system, the property system is currently there's a major layman style manufacturer, you know, developer that's just defaulted and everyone's worried about that. So all these things that are just yeah, there. Um, we just talked about that on the episode, but yeah, it, it's kind of scary. I mean, that, that, very vacuum scary. that would be created there is a lot different than a power vacuum in say in Afghanistan, very even different. though from a human rights perspective, yeah, it's still just as horrible, but I, I honestly, at this point, especially after listening to you, this is your fault, Jason. Uh, <laughs> I think we need to <laughs> make sure they don't go anywhere at this point in time. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I appreciate that you're yeah. kind of noticing these conflicts. Well, like it seems like our human rights values and our environmental values and our labor values, you know, they're all conflicting when it comes to China. And this is the reality. Yeah. Anyone who's giving you a nice, neat, easy, prepackaged thing like China's evil. Let's all gather together to fight them and defeat the communist empire, that kind of thing. Or you know, all this stuff. It's it's too simple, and it's 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 not what's really going on. Uh, so you nailed it. And I, I'm not usually the sort of person who encourages people to support the communist party. That's not what anyone who's listening to me would think. But you know, it's hard. I mean, how you take this information is. Uh, it forces you to think, right? When you really see the picture, mm-hmm. and it's like I'm not like it's not like I'm just saying, oh, the last ten years they've been so. I'm like, no, here's thousands of years of history. You can go look. You can go look at Wikipedia. You can go see all this stuff. So it's really there. Uh, but what we do about it is um, tough. And I think, like like I said earlier, I think there's a limit to how much we can even keep the Communist Party in power anymore. And the the real challenge is that I don't think they can keep themselves in power anymore. Part of what they're doing with this whole surveillance superstate they're creating, right? You know, they, you know, they have the Great Firewall. They can track everything. During COVID, they they massively expanded this surveillance state and they intruded on everything. They're trying to keep the, the per capita cost of, of social control, of population control manageable because China spends mm. more on internal security, on keeping all these pieces from fighting and going out and going crazy than it spends on external defense. So it spends more. That's like the U.S. spending more on its police force than it does on the U.S. military. Okay, right. and that's that's a very different sort of thing. Um, that's another reason. It's like, well, you know, maybe you don't attack Taiwan again. I think it's like a, it's a possibility out there, but like you have so many problems that someone like Taiwan knows exactly how to you know stir the pot. So we'll see. But I, I wish, man. I mean, I I think what's really going to happen is that we're going to have to figure. out, Like I said, I think the answer is to take some of the wisdom embedded in Chinese civilization, in Chinese history, and in, in the, the recent achievements, in the past achievements, and in the, the structure of their history and the patterns that it shows us, and use that to move, you know, humanity, civilization, whatever forward. I think that is the more, the contribution that I felt is, is manageable, actually, because the one of trying <laughs> to save China, I, I, I don't see how it's possible. And I've really thought about it. I've really thought, um, I, it. I mean, there's a number of very heinous things that the, the Communist Party is probably going to have to do just to try and even keep it together. So I don't know. I don't. I don't see it. <laughs> well, they've been around this long. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes, right? So, since <laughs> there's that, yeah, they've been around this long. Well, 
Man, thank you. I could talk to you for two hours, but we can't. We, yeah, we can't. <laughs> people will start you. nodding off. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll get sick of us for sure. <laughs> they would. They would. Uh, so where can people find you? You mentioned your podcast. Yeah, you guys should check it out. So China Unraveled. I kind of go into deep dives of different things. They're usually short episodes, although the most recent runs could be really long. I got that. You can check out a YouTube channel. Just type in you know Jason Sheftel. And I do kind of live streams. I try and talk about recent issues. And I try and give the context for it, kind of like what I did here. What's the re- what's the narrative? Who's pushing it? And then kind of what's the background that will help you not feel frustrated or angry or confused in a week from now? And why is it, are things changing? So check that out. Uh, there's also Twitter. You can find me on Twitter. I randomly post things. And those are probably the main ones. I'm also, I am in the process of putting a book that puts you know all of Chinese history together to try and do some of the deeper things I'm talking about. And I'm knee deep into editing it. And that's, those are the kind of main things. And yeah. Also, re- keep get in touch too. If you say if you think I'm totally wrong, I really do want to hear it. <laughs> I really am curious because I think I feel like I've been through every position. I'm just like I used to think I was gonna take over the world. I used to think this, and I just had to slowly yeah. come to where I am. So hopefully, it's right. And I always I, I say that to to people all the time too. Uh, having that contradictory opinion is beneficial. Yeah. It's it's you know it helps. You know, it's the only way to have intelligent conversation is yeah. somebody, you know, because you can't think you know everything, you know, it's like somebody's got to at least talk me down off this ledge. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> There's a great uh, medieval line, actually. They used to say that all the monks used to say that argument is where, where iron sharpens iron. I really like yeah. that. So it's like, all right, are you, if you want to sharpen yourself up, you can't just, I can't just stay here acting like I know everything all the time. So I got to, I got to right. take punches. So punch me please that was the final thought the final thing i'll say on this podcast please <laughs> all right we'll end me. with that <laughs> punch good. jason find him and punch him find me and all punch right me. sounds good <laughs> thanks for coming by as always everyone you know go to voluntaryinput.com that's where you can find out more about the show subscribe contact us and register as a guest uh we'd love to hear from you if you if you got some counterpoints for jason go ahead go to voluntaryinput.com register as a guest and we'll have you on and and you can say Here's me about to punch Jason in the face. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again for coming on and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you.